guys, welcome to episode 74 of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Emma Loggins, editor-in-chief at Fanbolt.com. I'm Matt Rodriguez, the owner and chief editor of ShakeFire.com. And I'm Mike McKinney of LastOneToLeadTheTheater.com and ATLCW.TV. And I don't even know where to start this week because we have so much awesomeness to talk about. Um, there's going to be a lot of Blade Runner stuff, and then... We also bullied Mike into seeing My Little Pony, which yeah. is epically awesome. <laughs> the bullying part is equally awesome. The movie is not. <laughs> Spoiler Are you sure, alert. Mike? I don't know. I think you're a secret brony, Mike. You did see I'm, My Little I'm Pony. Ha- I'm happy to, to say that I don't even know what you just said, Matt. So, no, I'm not. Whatever it is. <laughs> He's just pretending like he doesn't know now. It's, it's all right, Mike. Yeah. Um, well, before we dive into that, um, I wanted to, we do have an interview um, for this podcast as well with Leslie Dixon, who is a uh, writer. She was the, the writer for um, Mrs. Doubtfire. So I had a really great interview with her earlier this week, and she's a part of um, Turner Classic Movies initiative that they're doing this October for Trailblazing Women in Film. And uh, before they show a, a number of films on the network, they're, you know, interviewing and having these discussions with, you know, writers and producers and um, editors. And it's really, really fascinating. And my interview with Leslie was uh, really fascinating as well. I, I love it when people are just, you know, not necessarily um, giving you kind of the standard PR answers. And I felt like her honesty in a couple of areas, um, it, it just made it really, really interesting for me. Um so we'll dive into that in a moment, but um, I do kind of want to start with a little bit of Blade Runner stuff before we, we head into the review. Um, Matt and I saw it on Monday, and it was kind of ridiculous, all of the stuff they told us we couldn't talk about. And um, that kind of brought up the whole conversation of spoiler culture and when is it okay for... Um, you to kind of post online or talk about what you saw in a context that would, you know, potentially contain spoilers for those that haven't seen it. Um, so I'm kind of interested in what you guys think about that. When is it okay to have those I mean, discussions in regards to a release date? I mean, to be honest, I think it's fine at any point to talk about it, just so long as people know what they're getting into. Like, as long as you preface what you're writing or what you're saying with, hey, we're going to be talking about spoilers. If you don't want to get spoiled, don't listen, don't read, don't click on this link, you know. That way, it's up to the audience to decide whether they want to be spoiled or not. Because, I mean, to just talk about it itself, I wouldn't really say that would be, you know, you're not spoiling it, you're just discussing it. Right. And if people want to be spoiled, that's their choice. Now, if somebody says, says like, puts a spoiler in a headline and tweets it out, then that is definitely their fault. Right. You know, don't do that. Don't don't be that person and ruin it. Because then you are ruining it for other people because they don't have control over being spoiled or not. And I think that's what it really comes down to. Right. Okay, well, I, I've got a different take on that. Um, when I write reviews, um, I write reviews, even when I do long-form reviews, I write reviews that do not have spoilers. Um, I don't do that. Um, and I let everybody know that I don't do that because um, there's been a couple of times when I've read reviews of films um, 
before I've seen it or even after I've seen it. And I felt like they ruined the movie for me because they gave away too much information. And uh, so I really go out of my way. In my long-form reviews, I do give you what I do with my long-form reviews is I give you the first five or ten minutes of the film. I describe what's going on up to the point where something is about to happen that's going to turn the plot, is going to propel the plot. And then after that, my review is about how much I enjoyed it. Um, It's about... The, what the content was about without giving too much away. Um, I, I try really, really hard to do that in, in my reviews and not give anything away because I, want, I myself, as a viewer, want to go into a film without knowing anything, um, which is hard to do for me because I write a preview column. Every Monday I come out with all the movies that are coming out in the Atlanta area, whether it's small or big, and I have to describe what's going on in those movies um but i even if i've seen the film i don't give away spoilers in either the preview or in and i hate trailers that give out too much um i i don't remember what's that really bad movie that were um it was a comedy where uh two two people were running against each other for like mayor the candidate um was it the candidate uh, was it the kid was it the one who, with zach, the, zach galifianakis yeah, 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 yeah. And there was a there. There's a really funny bit with a dog in the film, and the freaking trailer. And it was a really, and it took you by surprise, and it was really, really funny. And um, the they showed it in the trailer, and that was the, the, literally the best part of that film. They showed it in the trailer. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's a lot of comedies do that though. So yeah, but I mean like I'm I'm the same as you, Mike. Like I don't do spoilers in my reviews, but I mean. Like I say, like that's a that's our choice to do. Like I don't like the fact that studios are saying, "Oh, don't talk about this, don't talk about that," blah blah blah. Like right. I say, I say, leave it up to the writer to decide. Right. No, I completely agree. I mean, you know, they basically with Blade Runner asked us to really not talk about any of the characters or anything other than saying it was a good film or, you know, it was it was beautiful to watch. Like there's there's so many little things, especially in this film, that can be interpreted as a spoiler that really takes out you know, what you can write as far as a plot line in in your review. So, I mean, this one is kind of. A little bit different than the norm, but um, yeah. I, and it's like I, I completely understand where the studio is coming from and how they want to preserve, you know, the the audiences being spoiler free as much as they can. Right. And so, like, I understand that it's just like uh, it makes it a little bit more difficult for us to do our job. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting to see um, our uh, friend, fellow critic here in Atlanta for Collider.com, Matt Goldberg writes because his reviews are filled with spoilers. His reviews literally describe almost the whole movie, um, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how he handles this uh, this situation. I feel like, you know, after you've gone and you've seen the film, you're probably going to want to discuss it and getting online and, and, you know, having those conversations on sites that do have a full review in terms of talking about specific plot points that you want to talk about. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's a conversation worth having. And I, I guess really it's as a reader, how do you 
how do you um, consume your reviews? Do you read them before you go to the film or do you read them after you go to the film and kind of pick up on maybe things you didn't pick up on or, you know, complain about things you want to complain about? Um, <laughs> because I think it's uh, people yeah. are going to want to have those discussions and to ask us not to post anything of that content. I totally yeah. understand where they're coming from, but I still think that there needs to be a place for those conversations after you've seen the film as well, as long as you give yeah. the reader warning that there's going to be, you know, some spoilers on it. Yeah. And I mean, that technically, this only applies until the movie comes out because, you know, once the movie's out and in the public, it's basically free game for anybody to write whatever they want about it. Right. Right. I mean, that's one of the things we agree to foreseeing it early, foreseeing it ahead of time is, you know, we agree to these embargoes and these um, NDAs because we get to see it early. Right. But for your listeners out there, when we see movies ahead of time, uh, sometimes we see movies way ahead of time, even sometimes as many as three or, or even a month. Um, we have basically, we agree to embargoes, which means that we can't really talk about the film until the studio says it's okay to talk about it. A lot of times it's the release day or it's the night before. Sometimes it's a couple of days before, especially if they have a film that they feel is going to be uh, critically acclaimed and it's going to have good word of mouth um but we have almost every film has some sort of embargo on it um, which they make very clear to us so we have to be even careful in when we're tweeting out stuff that we can't say just about anything about it other than we saw the film um until those embargoes are up right right well our review today will be interesting because we're not going to have any spoilers in it, and um, the movie itself is pretty filled with things that um, would be considered spoilers. But uh, we'll get yeah. back to we'll get back we'll, to that. We'll talk about that once <laughs> once we get there. I do want to talk a little bit about. Um, I have a video that's coming out um, today on Fanbolt that is a tasting video for the Johnny Walker. Uh, Black Label Director's Cup, which is a, a unique limited edition whiskey that's created by master blender Jim Beveridge in collaboration with visionary filmmaker, um, the director, of course, of Blade Runner. And I didn't actually realize that it appeared in the first film, but it did appear in the first film. And so it's making its return in uh, 2049, which is which <laughs> is really cool. Um the Johnny one, Walker survives all these years. It does. It does. It's uh, what's really cool is we got to taste the whiskey when we were at um, uh, Comic Con. Yeah, for their some of us did. <laughs> Mike didn't. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's the 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 black label um, whiskey, but it's it's in a really cool futuristic bottle that's actually the same bottle, spoiler alert, that they use in the film. Um, that's hey, the only there were, spoiler. There, there were no there were no restrictions about the black label whiskey. Exactly. We, we didn't get they notes probably, on they, that. They probably want us to talk about it. I'm surprised that wasn't in the, the list, the bullet point list. It's like, oh, you must talk about Johnny Walker black label whiskey. Because it's very, it is very obvious in the film. It is. When it's th that they're drinking it and like, oh, it's that it's that perfect bottle lined up with the label just facing the camera. So you can read it. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. It's interesting because a couple of people have asked me about other product placements and um, that one definitely stuck out and I think would have stuck out even if I wasn't, you know, um, if, even if Johnny Walker hadn't sent me a bottle to, to test here and to photograph here. Um, 
but it's it's really the only kind of product placement that that stuck out at me. And you know, in today's film and TV landscape, product placements are just you know consuming the the airtime. So um, it was nice to see that that made it made it through to twenty forty nine. I'm actually I'm actually in favor of product placement because um, I'm old enough to have seen a lot of bad. 1970s and 1980s television where they always had generic stuff or and made up stuff uh made up you know cereal boxes made up beer cans um and it always bothered me uh watching those shows so i was like i want to know what what those characters are drinking i want to know what they're they're eating you know and, and it always it always just stuck out to me it always that was always something that bothered me about. And they don't do it anymore because they're actually getting money now for this product placement. Uh, but that used to bother me a lot um, as, as uh, in my younger days. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, um, there are only 39,000 bottles of this available to buy in 15 countries. And so when it's gone, it's gone. So I recommend getting a bottle to enjoy because it tastes great, and then getting I was about a bottle. To say, is it good? Like, say, what is what good. is your review on the? On I the mean, black it's. Label? I'm a whiskey girl, so of course I loved yeah. it. Um, the, the tasting notes I have here is it's, uh, you know, a classic Johnny Walker Black Label style with a contemporary twist, a dark, rich, smooth blend with clouds of smokiness and a touch of femininity. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely you can taste the the kind of smoky peatiness to it, which I really the like. Femininity? The you femininity. Can taste the femininity. You can taste the femininity. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, words. Uh, they actually, they actually. Um, you didn't have the noodles, right? I didn't have the, the noodles at the comical because, like, they had udon noodles that were made with the Johnny Walker Black that were actually really good. I remember you talking about that, and yeah. I also remember uh, several other um, writers talking about that and trying to figure out where they got those noodles because they came from somewhere, um, some restaurant in San Diego, and then were mm. were made with the with the Johnny Walker. And I'm, God, I wish I had had them. I didn't even know that there was food in that. Like I was wandering around. I didn't know like. I mean, it's you yeah. have so many people wandering around that are in character that are trying to, you know, really create this environment for you. I had no idea there was food. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, oh, well. But um, I, I didn't either because I didn't get the pill. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, like I was saying earlier, definitely pick up a bottle. But then I recommend picking up a second bottle to save until 2049 and then consume it in 2049 if we're all still here (laughs) in 2049 um but uh so the big question is do you still have some yes i do still have some so you can share with the person that drinks johnny walker on a regular basis i can hook you up (laughs) i've got you (laughs) no worries so we got that important question out of the way (laughs) um but yeah so um that's kind of uh, touching, touching on uh, Blade Runner, uh, but I want to kind of take a, a detour for a second before we hop into our um, box office and then to our to our film reviews and kind of uh, talk a little bit about um, the interview that I did yesterday with uh, Leslie Dixon, and um, well, it's pretty awesome, and I will uh, I'll just go ahead and play it for you guys now, and then we'll talk a little bit about it afterwards. Um, this is just a segment of it. You can read the the full interview is up on womensbusinessdaily.com. 
and uh, that is live now for you guys to read. Um, but here we go. Here is my interview with Leslie Dixon, the writer of Mrs. Doubtfire and the Thomas Crown Affair. I was reading that you actually um, didn't have any contacts in the industry when you got started. Um, can you talk a little bit about the professional journey you took kind of coming into Hollywood with, with uh, you know, starting as a scriptwriter but not really knowing anyone? All right. Um, I'll say that not really knowing anyone is not as daunting these days as it was when I didn't know anyone because of the Internet. The internet is a great leveler of the playing field. Um, and this may sound a little discursive, but I became aware of this when we started going up to a dude ranch every year in Montana. And all of a sudden, these young cowboys that were working there seemed much hipper and smarter and tuned into pop culture than I had remembered from five years earlier. And it was because they all were online reading the same things, streaming the same movies that people in L.A. were dreaming and reading. And now, at the time that I did it, it was so very daunting because you had to physically live there, go there, get a place to live, get some kind of a job, start networking, try to find someone who would read your script. Um, now you can enter your script in a contest that is legitimate. There's the Nicholas Fellowship, there's Sundance, there's all sorts of Final Draft has a script contest. And if you place or win one of those contests, you instantly get an agent. Somebody will represent you, and you're in the door, and you might not have taken a step out of your hometown. Um, so that's astonishing, and it has brought forth a lot more people who are trying. The look that I had was a lot of people didn't want to live in tasteless LLA back in those days. And so you had to work up um, the willingness to leave perhaps the nicer, cleaner, prettier place you were from, which in my case was San Francisco, and physically go to Los Angeles. It was just absolutely necessary. Um, I didn't know anybody. I didn't, I hadn't gone to college. I didn't have a big network of that. There was a alcohol problem in my immediate family. So I was kind of ran out the door at 18 and I didn't have the alcohol problem myself. I wanted to be away from it. So um, I kind of kicked around. I had kicked around in San Francisco. I was in a, I was in a Western swing band for a while. <laughs> I had a habit of guitar player boyfriends. Um, which I remember with bittersweet fondness. <laughs> I, to this day, I can play pretty good Western swing backup, uh, but that was not going to be my career. And I had had a very functional childhood, a very fun childhood, until the alcohol problem hit my household. And my house was filled with books and records, and we went to the movies a lot. And so I had a lot of nutrients intellectually and emotionally that made me strong despite this left turn in my immediate home. And I had a kind of a appreciation for pop culture. Um, I didn't come to L.A. with the intention of being an artist and writing Citizen Kane. I wanted to be more 
like a journeyman from the 1930s that cranked out delightful films that starred Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Right. Cool. Uh, do you have Do you have a process when you're you're sitting down to to write a screenplay? Is it different every time, or do you kind of have you it's know a routine? Every time, it's different because you don't know whether you're. Sometimes you're rewriting someone else's work. I've done a lot of those. When you see my name on a script in the second position, it means I rewrote the first writer. Um, sometimes you start with a novel, and you actually have the story sketched out. Sometimes you make up the whole thing, and it's an original screenplay. Um, sometimes you start with a graphic novel. That's what's going a lot. Of, uh, that's a lot of what's going on these days. Um, so there are so many different ways to to break in. Most people have to break in with some piece of original material, but you'd be amazed how many novels are lying around out there that are not optioned, or the or the writer will let you option it for a dollar because if a script makes it through the pile um, and gets made into a film, then their novel will take off and sell more. Right. So there's lots of ways. I highly recommend, it's it's far easier for me anyway, to start with something that somebody really smart wrote and and Hollywoodize it than to make everything up yourself. That's truly the hardest. Right. Well when you're when you're doing that, what is your relationship like with the the original author of it? How how involved are they at that point? Well, in the ideal world, the original author is dead and can't give you any grief. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked with Edith Wharton beautifully in that uh, capacity. But that's kind of a good joke because when I was working on Limitless, which is based on a book called The Dark Fields by Alan Glynn, we were in constant contact. I was so impressed with his writing and his book that I wanted to pay him the respect that Hollywood producers rarely pay to original writers, originators of material. And I, I was in constant email contact with him because uh, an uphill battle to get that movie made, get the right cast, just get the right director. And uh, I had him in my back pocket the whole way. That's super helpful. Um, yeah, well, well, he just... Um, he was understanding about the Hollywood process. He was sophisticated, which helped. Right, right. Well, when you're when you're writing a script and um, you know you you don't have a film optioned yet, or you don't have the cast for a film yet, um, how does that work for you as far as bringing your characters to life on the page? How do you envision them? And I guess do you, do you have a say at all in the casting process, or are looking for certain attributes and certain um, you know people that will be cast? Every film is different. A lot of it has to do with your relationship with the studio and your relationship with the eventual director who's going to make those decisions more firmly than you are. Um, very rarely you might be in a position where there's a bidding war for your script and, you're, and you might have some leverage and you might be able to say, you can't, I'm a producer on it and you can't put a director on it that I don't like. In other words, you can't pick the director over their heads. But I've had some contracts where I have veto power over the director and I have veto power over the lead. So when they suddenly say um, that they want 
to cast the inarticulate hunk of the week as a character who is supposed to be a flaming genius, <laughs> I could say no. Right. Um, but that is extremely rare. And the best way you can bring a character life on the screen is just imagine the role with your favorite actor or actress playing it. It sometimes works. You end up getting that person. That's awesome. Um, well, with that, imagine I... your favorite star just doing this and saying that. And uh, certainly, that was one of my goals on Mrs. Doubtfire. I don't think they ever would have made the movie if they hadn't gotten Robin Williams. So you needed to provide a large piece of bait that seemed like it encompassed his skill set. Right. That was my job. It was fun to imagine, and it was even more fun to see it happen. And that was my interview with Leslie, or part of my interview with Leslie. Like I said, the rest is up on the site. Um, but I thought that was a pretty good interview. I was pretty happy no, with yeah, it. That, that was a great interview. I loved it. I mean, as someone who has dabbled a little bit in screenwriting myself, it was really refreshing to hear such a an honest take on the business and, you know, how she broke in and stuff. So I really loved reading it. And I always did. Yeah, that's a... That's always interesting to know and how how they how they they get into the business. It's always yeah. it's always uh, I mean it's really interesting, especially you know when she she didn't know anyone in Hollywood. You know, as she said when she when she uh, kind of broke in and and started by being a uh, by being a screenwriter or excuse me a, a script reader and just the kind of journey from there. I mean, it is a lot easier now with all of the competitions yeah. that are out there that you can enter, and it's it's definitely a different. A different world now but um one thing that um is in the interview on on the, the website women's business daily um that we didn't get into in this is limitless which uh she wrote <laughs> and what's interesting is you know i saw her credits on um on the tv series so i just assumed that she was more involved in the tv series than apparently she was and when i asked her about it you know kind of the challenges that that presents um <clears throat> Going from a film to a TV show, you know, creatively, what challenges does that present you when you're having to come up with a story that doesn't exist, but is, you know, inspired by this original content? And she said she actually has nothing to, she had nothing to do with the TV show and her name was only on it for uh, contractual reasons. And um, they, they offered her the chance to write the pilot, but she didn't want to do it. And she wasn't, she didn't think it was a good idea. And she was pretty, uh, you know, convinced <laughs> it, it wasn't going to do well, which it, it didn't. Um, but it was it was interesting how honest she was about that and how she was against the idea because it's um, it was something that was going to be sanitized for for network television and she knew that you know it needed to be on a different network if it was going to you know be as dark and and complex as it really should have been and she felt you know the series had the potential to do something like Westworld um, but it it ended up going to the highest bidder which was network TV and she thought that that was pretty much the nails in the coffin on that project so um, it was just interesting to have that kind of um, honesty uh, about it Um, I I feel like that's the kind of conversations we don't really get to to hear um, because everything is so kind of put through through a PR filter so um, yeah that's really cool. And also to say, you know, I, I went to um, 
the filming um, at at Turner for these little segments that they were doing to to air as a part of the the Trailblazing Women in Film um, that's airing um, on uh, uh, Turner Classic Movies this month, and you can find out more about that at their site. But uh, they have they haven't broken down into you know writers, editors, producers. And it's it's just really fascinating stuff. So yeah, um, and the conversation, especially because like that's that in itself is just a section you don't hear too often about. You, usually, it's you know the actors or the directors. You know, you don't really get the the writers or the producers side of the story. Right, and it's it's something that's interesting because it's something that um, you know I've noticed going to Comic Con and and Jen too. Um, I think uh, my my partner in Comic Con crime. Uh, Jen still, she normally, uh, when she first started going with me, I guess nine years ago, uh, when she went to her first one, um, she was all about interviewing the actors. And now when she goes, she's like, I know the actors can't answer any of my questions. Like, I want to talk to the writers and the producers. Like, that's where you get the yeah. best answers. And you, as a fan, you know, actually, you know, uh, hear what information that makes you just look at the project differently or get more excited about it or so many of these stories about bringing, you know, a project to the the big or small screen are, are stories that the writers and producers have and that the actors are totally not a part of. So, yeah. um, I mean, if, if you want to if you want to read a, a book that is very similar to what you're talking, there's a book that Don Steele wrote. She was a legendary uh, producer um, and she became the first woman to had a major film studio in 1987 in Columbia. Uh, she wrote a book uh, that was called They Can Kill You But They Can't Eat You and it's about her life and breaking into the movies uh, as a woman and it's just a and she's very funny in the book. She's very witty um, and I highly recommend it. Unfortunately she died at age 51 back in 97. I wish she still was around because she was an amazing individual. Um, and, and produced some really cool things. And her her first big thing that she ever did was um, she did the marketing tie-ins for the first Star Trek movie, and it really put her on the map. Um, she did some very innovative things with that film. So if you're you guys are interested in stuff like that, then this I highly recommend that book. You know, um, uh, she was actually mentioned too by another interview that I have coming towards the end of the month with uh, Stephanie Allen, who was the SVP at uh, Columbia Pictures for a few years and also was the the president at my beloved Jim Henson Studios for, for a stint as well. And um, she's a producer now and has, um, has a number of projects that she's she's currently working on in the, the television space. But um, uh, it, it's just an interesting... It's an interesting conversation. I get. I guess that's really, really all I have to say. And it's uh, the videos are the the segments that are airing on uh, our Turner Classic Movies are really, really awesome. And the conversations and the stories um, are they're just awesome. So definitely and the, the uh, go ahead. I was going to say just definitely, uh, definitely check that out because it's it's so refreshing to see, um, especially females being kind of highlighted in, in this space because it, Hollywood is still such a, a man's world. And, you know, we're starting to have those conversations now about, you know, the roles and the pay quality and, and all of that. So having these conversations with, you know, the women behind the scenes and, and behind the camera, um, it just gives you a whole nother um, kind of respect for the journey that they've had to take in this industry. Yeah, and that, the whole series is being hosted by uh, one of my favorite actors, Eliana Douglas, um, 
uh, who is just a really, um, in fact, she's just written a book that's really, really good also. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but I, I just recently read it, and it's an excellent book. She's uh, the granddaughter of a screen legend, uh, Melvin Douglas, and uh, uh, she kind of fell into into her first movie role, so... Um, She's she's led an interesting life. She has. And I also have an interview up with her on womensbusinessdaily.com. So um, that was my first one from this kind of um, month-long women in entertainment series that I'm doing just because I had access to all of these amazing women to chat with. So um, you can read that too, Mike. It's a good interview. All right, I will. <laughs> um, but I do want to kind of say, you know, while we're talking about writing, I got an interesting email from Fox the other day, and they have this program that I wasn't familiar with, um, Fox Writers oh, Lab. I got that email too. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of cool, and I thought kind of fell into this conversation for for those people out there that may be looking to get into um, writing, especially for for television. Um, Fox. This has, is one of those those screenwriting contests. It is. That she mentions. It is. It's um, so Fox Inclusion today um, announced that they are that the Fox Writers Lab is now accepting applications for its uh, 2018 program, which is designed to nurture experienced and emerging writers with unique voices, backgrounds, and life experiences, and create a strong pipeline of well-rounded talent for potential staffing as writers and/or story editors on Fox Productions. So um, basically, it's an immersive uh, four-month uh, curriculum that focuses on developing original material, honing writing skills, and exploring uh, the business of media and entertainment. And then at the end of everything, eight writers are selected to participate um, in the Writers Lab. And these writers receive priority staffing meetings for um, the established staff, or excuse me, established staff writer position on a Fox television show. And from the eight that are um, from those eight writers, one is actually named uh, the or will be named the 2018 Fox Writers Lab Fellow and receive a blind script deal with Fox Broadcasting Company. So writers from the last season's uh, uh, Writers Lab were staffed on Lucifer, The Gifted, Last Man on Earth, The Exorcist, and the upcoming Atlanta film, The Resident. So. Um, that's something to check out if you're looking to kind of break into the industry. The submission process and application requirements are all up on the audienceawards.com slash fox slash fox writers lab. And um, that is the deadline for that is October 22nd. So go ahead and check that out if you're interested in partaking in that for 2018. It's kind of a, a cool opportunity with a, a fast track to potentially work on one of their series. Yeah, it really is. Um, as a son of a playwright, I'm always interested in, in writing uh, in programs and stuff like that. And if you are interested in becoming a screenwriter, one of the best things you can do is attend film festivals because you will meet other writers and you will meet you'll you'll be can talk to them up close and personal and ask them. And a lot of times, these film festivals have seminars. They have uh, 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 classes on on screenwriting. In fact, uh, there's the the Austin Film Festival is coming up. It's known as the Writers Film Festival. They feature writers. They have writers come in. They have, even have writers where you can sit down at a table and do a, a little round table with them and ask them anything. And you get to sit there for 15 minutes with these writers. So if you're interested in in screenwriting or in writing for TV. Go to film festivals. They are the best way that you can learn about the craft and the best way to meet other writers. Definitely. That's good advice. Um, well, speaking about writing, um, 
Yeah, I got no transition for this. Let's uh, let's just hop, <laughs> hop into the like, weekend where, where, box office. Where are you going with this? Well, writing starts with a W, <laughs> as does weekend box office. That's well, the most horrible I, I transition you, ever. <laughs> I, I can tell you about one of the films, Flatliners, uh, had some really bad writers. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's still in the top five, and that's better than I thought it was going to do. Um, that came in in fifth and with six point five million. Um, yeah. That that's better than I thought it was gonna do. I mean, I think I said I think I said six million. What did was you? the budget on that one? Uh, the budget was nineteen million. What did they spend nineteen mm. million on? Mike, you saw it. Um, well, it's it's certainly not the cast because the biggest person in the film is uh, is Ellen Page, um, uh, and the Kiefer Sutherland's in it. But uh, you know, they they. I have no idea. I mean, it does have some special effects. They they do do a lot of CGI in it because, well, one of the characters flies around the campus. Another character um, goes on a motorcycle at really high speed, and um, it's. But if you saw the original, there's no need to see this one because it's basically the same film, even though they claimed it was a sequel. I mean, Kiefer Sutherland is wasted in it. He is. He plays the same character he's that drunk. he's placed in the first film. But but he there's no but at no point does he go, oh you must be flatlining. I did it. Don't do it. He doesn't ever say that because it never comes up. It's just a, it's a stupid film. <laughs> I'm sorry, I went and saw it. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure I predicted six million for this for this film. Well, so. then you would have been right, which I, I'm just amazed it made that much. But. Um, First place was super, well, first and second were super tight. Uh, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Uh, and third. And third. Uh, no oh, st- yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't even. Yeah, okay. So, um, Kingsman, The Golden Circle was in first with 16.9 um, million. Uh, I guess I need to get more specific here. Six, yeah, <laughs> 16,935,000. <laughs> it was in second with 16,902,000. And American Maid was in third with 16.7 million. Um, and then, of course, Ninjago, uh, the, the Lego Ninjago movie came in in fourth with 11.6 million. But those one, two, and three, holy cow! I don't, yeah, I don't feel really like close. I've seen that in a while, especially with Kingsman and it. I mean, to have it like twenty thousand dollars or thirty thousand yeah. dollars between the two. That's, I mean, now we're in October too, and I think it's probably going to hang around a little bit longer because yeah. people want a good horror film and it is a good horror film. So get that Halloween bump. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, after, after this weekend, um, I mean, there's no question that Blade Runner is oh, going to come in first. It's going to be Blade Runner. Yeah. The question is how much do you guys think it's going to make? I don't know. I'm terrible with actual numbers, so I'm not even going to guess. <laughs> eight, bill- um, eight billion so- dollars. <laughs> Way to aim Actually, high. No, right. It's going to be My so, Little Pony. So the, my Little Pony's yes. going to win, right, Mike? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. Now, unfortunately, My Little Pony is going to do do a fairly decent number. Um, my guess is be, between 10 and $12 million, um, because right now there are no other kid movies to see. So um, that's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm guessing Blade Runner is... It's going to be around the sixty million mark. Really, um, I would think higher than that. You don't think higher? Um, if it does higher, I don't think it'll make seventy million. Wow. All right. 
Well, we shall see. Well, we'll see. I'm I'm gonna say over seventy million then, because okay, I because because we've seen the film, Mike. We've seen the film, yeah, and I'm gonna we go know, see it again. We know so. how it's gonna be. <laughs> well, I think it, it. I think it just depends on how many more screens because they're adding screens yeah. uh, because. Um, as uh, Emma found out, there are there are set, the IMAX uh, ones are selling out. Yeah. Uh, so if they, of course they can't add any more screens with IMAX, but they can add more screens with the with the rest of their. And I will say theaters. this is definitely one you want to see like in IMAX or in the bigger screen format. Definitely. Because we will talk about it in our official review. And and you want to see My Little Pony in the smallest screen possible. <laughs> Um, well, uh, we do have one other film that's coming out. That's a major film. Um, the Mountain Between Us is coming out. Uh, that's Idris Elba and uh, Kate Winslet. Um, and I'm thinking it's going to do uh, between eight and ten million. But I don't think it'll beat My Little Pony. Oh wow! That okay. Well, I will. Say- <laughs> I, 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 there's a, I can't give you the reason right now. Well, I guess I can. It's Friday, isn't it? Um, you can't. It, the you reason can? is because it's not. <laughs> going to be well received by um, critics i mean blade runner um, let's let's talk a little bit about um so if i have this information from fandango and they basically can indicate you know or make some fun fact. some fun facts based upon you know ticket sales and um they have this this thing called anticipation which is basically uh in, insights uh stat insights to what movie plan or movie fans are planning on seeing on a weekend obviously because they have the advanced ticket sales that help them Pull together that information, um, but Blade Runner is uh, proving it was worth the wait by uh, weekend ticket sales and the Movie Buzz indicator with a score of ninety-one out of a hundred points. I don't actually know what this point system means. Maybe I should have looked that up before I I printed this like, out to read to you guys. But. Or 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 how does that compare to other films? That well, they've, they've done. Um, like, my little. Like what does ninety-one mean? I can tell you, My Little Pony has a 72 um, on on uh, this movie buzz indicator. It does say that Blade Runner is outpacing Interstellar, Prometheus, Gravity, The Martian, Mad Max, Fury Road at the same point in the t- ticket sell cycle. And My Little Pony is currently outselling Captain Underpants, uh, the Emoji Movie, which I can't imagine was hard to outsell, and um, Smurfs: The Lost Village at the same point in the the sell cycle. Um, so, you know, and, and they claim that nostalgia for the 1980s is also helping My Little Pony. I don't, I mean, if we're talking about nostalgia, I feel like that's all in Blade Runner's favor and not... Has, has My Little Pony been around since the 80s? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's a TV yeah. show. I mean, I had, I had the toys growing up, so I, I... But I don't know if I ever realized that it was a, a TV show. I thought it was just, like, a toy line, like, you know like Barbies. Barbies didn't have, maybe Barbies did have a TV show and I didn't know about that either. But, um, was the TV show first for My Little Pony? Or the toys? Or was it the toy you know? Like which, which came first? Oh, you're asking me? Yeah, you're, you're, you're our expert now on My Little Pony. <laughs> Come on, Mike. You should, you need to know every single thing about My Little Pony. Um, I have no clue. I, my, it, judging on, you call other... yourself a fan. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm looking this up. Um, let's see. It is originally developed as a toy line for girls, and generally, generally back in the '80s, when uh, with TV, um, and this is before FCC regulations basically stopped doing this, they were creating TV shows to promote the toys that are already around. 
just like uh, like GI Joe uh, Transformers. Yeah. Um, my guess is that uh, the the the, pro- the line was around before the TV show. Yeah. The uh, the toys were introduced um, in 1981 and um, became popular during the 80s, and then that inspired the animated series and an animated feature length film and two animated um, specials. Um, so that was all kind of in the nineties, I guess, I, I guess when they're saying eighties nostalgia, they're just talking about the toys, but, um, and then the toy Jeez. line was revived in 1997, um, but then were proved to be unpopular and discontinued by 1999 and then somehow revived again in 2003 and then a fourth incarnation of the franchise in 2010 and the brand grossed over 1 billion annually in retail sales in 2015 and 2014. So, um, I'm not sure when the whole brony thing became a thing. Um, I mean, that was like in the 2010. That's fairly recent. 2012, 13. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely recent. I don't even know what you guys are talking about with this brony thing. So, bronies. It's like, what is that? It's like are guys who guys are huge. That, yeah. My little pony oh, fans. Oh, 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 it's the guys that are into my little pony. Yeah. Yep. They're yep. called bronies. They are. It's, uh, uh, bro and pony, so like bro ponies. That's that's, that's how just, they. That's just not. Right. They named themselves that. <laughs> just, that's just not right. Uh, most of these male fans are between the ages of thirteen and thirty-five, and um, there's fan sites for them. There's conventions, yeah. and it all kind of okay. generated out of My Little Pony Friendship Is Magic television series. So, um, which was the fourth incarnation of, of My Little Pony. So that was fairly recent, but... Uh, okay, we're, we're spending way too much time on My Little Pony. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the culture... We're still going to get your full review, Yeah, the, the culture of this, I find, is kind of interesting, because it's just not something Watch. you would ever think that guys would be a diehard fan this, of this. This, this is going to be our if, most popular episode because of My Little Pony. Just watch. <laughs> Watch. Then we're, we're going to mention it on Twitter and Facebook, and people are just going to click away. It's going to be amazing. Mike, you're going to have to cover all things My Little Pony moving forward because of that. Yep. Um, I, I've got I have something to say to you, but I will have to wait until the podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> this is a G-rated podcast. Um, is it not, not applicable for the My Little Pony fans? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Well, um, let's jump into reviews. Um, I feel like because we're talking about My Little Pony, we should do that one first and then go into Blade Runner. Save the best for last because, let's face it, Blade Runner's going to be the better of these two films. Um, So, Mike, do you want to tell us what the My Little Pony movie is about? Well, first off, let me say that I went and saw this film because Matt and Emma bullied me into seeing this film. Don't, don't, and then don't they con- put. Then after I saw the film, they, continu- they continued to bully me afterwards. Yeah, we did. And then a bunch of our other of our friends started bullying me also. So we can't. And I help. To, and, You're a My Little Pony fan, Mike. And by the way, Emma did not go to this. Now she has an excuse, but she, she probably could have found a screening. In the city she was in, Matt has no excuse. I have a perfect so excuse. I, which was I didn't want to see it. <laughs> I, mean, I had fair. better things to do on a Saturday morning, yeah, such as well, anything else. So I got up on it. So I got up on a Saturday morning and trudged to this to the theater to see this film with a ton of kids, and I think maybe I recognized one other critic, and I think they're not actually they're a mommy blogger. 
there were certainly a lot of mommy bloggers in in the in the critic area. All right, so um, <laughs> the best way to describe this film, um, in order to stop a threat to Equestraria, Twilight oh Sparkle God, and already. her friends, Applejack, Rainbow Dash, Pinkie Pie, Fluttershy, Rarity, and Spike must travel to faraway places to save their home. <laughs> the, the voice cast included Emily Blunt, Kristen Chenoweth, uh, uh, and Tay Diggs. And there was also Sia. In fact, Sia is, has a character in it called Songbird Serenade. Um, there are seven original songs in this film. Actually, a couple of them are not bad. The Sia one's actually pretty good. It's the closing credits song. Uh, it's called Rainbow. Um, but the film, uh, it's just, it was painful to watch. Um, because it's basically what you think it's going to be, which is a... a sickly sweet film that only little kids are going to enjoy um the plot simply animation is nothing out of the ordinary and it's you know it's about a group of ponies some of them unicorns that they have names like fluttershy um so you know this film is about ponies and it seemed like i don't know there's 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 ponies there's um there's also seahorses and the and the ponies turn into seahorses at one time (laughs) If, if you took acid and watched this film, you probably would enjoy it. <laughs> oh, that is a glowing you know, you know, review. I, I was waiting for the... I was, I'm, I'm sure there's a rainbow... Well, there's a rainbow dash, um, you know, but there's not a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow in this film. There's just another cute My Little Pony at that end of the rainbow. Um, I, it was painful to watch. Um, I hated most of every minute of it um, and I would give it an inc- I would give it a incredibly small A. I like how he just ran himself through the entire Atlas like review yeah. without us He's having like, any part in it. <laughs> let's just get this over with. It's like pulling teeth. Yeah, I, I, I would like to not discuss it anymore because um, I just it's just uh, so so was, Mike which just, which is your favorite My Little Pony character? I have no clue because I lost track because there's there's a million of them in this film and I lost the only one I know of that uh, because I I've met the voice uh, actress um, that does Twilight Sparkle, um, you know, so uh, t- uh, Tara Strong is the is the person that, and she's doing Twilight Sparkle for a lot of times she's a legendary voice actress she does a ton of different um, cartoon voices. Um, and so that's the only one I even knew which one was because of her voice. And she was kind of, she's the lead pony um, that decides that they need to go to this faraway land to save their home. I don't even know how they figured out. I don't even remember why they're doing it. And frankly, I don't remember too much of the film. I tried to wipe it out of my brain after I saw it. Um, uh, is this the worst film you've seen of the year? Or do you still dislike Boss Baby more than this? No, I, I, you know, what saved this film were this, the, the, at least that felt like they tried in this film because they had the original songs. And like I said, there's two of them that were actually not bad. Now, they're not the level of, say, Frozen or Beauty and the Beast, but they were tolerable. I've seen some other animated films where they had original songs and they were just god awful bad. And, so that's the only thing from making that making this not a total total disaster. Um, 
but so it's not the worst film I've seen this year. That's that's easy to say. <laughs> All right. Well, we won't make you Good talk any know. more about it this week. <laughs> but thanks for being a trooper and going to see it, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> see, we wouldn't have yeah. this amazing podcast without you. It's true. Yeah. Well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. It sounds um, like you don't I'm, think I'm it to- was worth I'm it. I'm totally defeated now. <laughs> Um, well, let's jump into Blade Runner 2049, which um, basically yeah, okay. is a, a sequel to the original Blade Runner. Um, do you kind of... Well, now, I haven't seen it, so do I need to, to go silent here for a while? Well, I mean, we're not going to be talking about any spoilers, Yeah, of we, we can't talk so, about any spoilers. I mean, so. we're going to be pretty vague on everything. Yeah. Yeah, but do, are you, is your review going to ruin any of it for me? I don't think so. I don't think so. Don't worry, Mike. Yeah. We, we, we won't. We'll, we'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. We're not going to, no. It'll be fine. <laughs> we don't even know how to answer these questions because we can't talk about the film at all. Yeah. Um, but let's, uh, let's just jump right on into it. Um, of course, we know that this is a, a young Blade Runner's discovery of a long buried secret that leads him down uh, uh, to track down former Blade Runner uh, Rick Derrick or Deckard, um, who's been missing for 30 years. So that's all we know. That's the official that's the description gist. of the film. That's no spoiler alerts there. Ryan um, Gosling is the new Blade Runner. And he does a great job. <laughs> um, yes. um, so on a, and review over. Uh, exactly. That's all we can say. Um, no, uh, on a scale of, of one to five, um, how bored were you, Matt? Um, I would say I would give it a one one between a one and a 1.5 because first of all this movie is two hours and 40 minutes long it is so, a long movie yeah so it is or 245 actually so it is yeah it is a very long movie but i mean even then i'm still giving it a one and to a 1.5 because it is one it's a beautiful movie to look at it um, is roger deakins is the um he is the cinematographer and it's directed by Denis Villeneuve, who did he did Arrival from last year. Um, he did Sicario. He did Prisoners. So you know all of his films are absolutely beautiful, and Blade Runner is is no different. You know it is an amazing film to look at. I love his visual style that he brings to the franchise. Um, a lot of the film are these very quiet and intimate moments where you know there's not a lot of talking. There's there's not a lot of music. It's just very silent and intense. And so if you're into that kind of stuff, like I am, it's great. But um, I could see some people getting bored with those moments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I you know I it was a long film, but I wasn't bored at all. So I'm I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a zero for boredom. Like I I wasn't absolutely. Yeah, like I, yeah, it was long, um, and I had yeah. to to pee for like the last half of the movie, so I was aware <laughs> of how long it was. Um, but yeah. even that being said, like it 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 didn't feel like it ran on to me. Like I didn't feel like it was just you know uh, minutes that weren't needed for the storyline. So um, I'm gonna give it a zero for boredom because I was on board. Um, yeah. So eye rolling factor one to five. Were you rolling your eyes at all? No, I. Oh, I rolled my eyes once, 
And that was at the the whole Johnny Walker <laughs> product <laughs> placement thing and how obvious it was. It was because pretty we, obvious. Emma, Emma, Emma and I had talked about talked about it before and you know, we did the whole Comic Con experience. So like we knew that Johnny Walker played a big well was part of the film marketing and stuff. And so when we saw it in there, yeah, I rolled my eyes a little bit at that. But um other than that, no, I'm I wasn't really rolling my eyes at all. The story is really good. It's a really good story. It's really engaging. Um, you really just have no idea where it's going and stuff at times. And so it's definitely, you know, you're not going to be rolling your eyes at all during it. Yeah, no, I, I'm on the same page. I would give it a, a zero for that, too. Um, it's not a predictable movie. So, um, I and that's one of the things I appreciated most about this film is that I, I couldn't tell you, you know, where where things were going to end up. So um, I did laugh at the product placement, though, because that was, you know, we had been talking about that for, for a couple of months now. So that was cool to see and even cooler to see that it was the same bottle that you yeah. can buy. Um, so that kind of I geeked out a it's little like bit. It's like you practically have like a piece from set. I know. Exactly. I'm just going to tell people it's from set and like put it up on a mantle. Well, I mean, we we also have rocks from um, Star Wars. It's true. So that's true. When that's I what went, we're saying. When I went to the um, when I uh, went to Ireland earlier this year and visited a couple of the filming locations for Star Wars, I brought them all back rocks from the beach that they filmed on and told them all that they were um, props from set. <laughs> so. You guys That's are welcome. That's what we're going with. <laughs> exactly. I expect all of you to pinpoint your rock in the movie when it releases this December. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but anyways, moving forward. Um, best and worst actor in this. Um, for me personally, I couldn't pick a worse actor. Like I, I felt like everyone did a really good job. And I, I, I feel like this is probably territory we have to be careful in as far yeah. as um, uh, saying too much. Um I, I think Ryan Gosling, I'm going to give it to Ryan Gosling because, I mean, he is this film. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was leaning more towards Ryan Gosling as well um, because he is the focus of the film. And it's it's a really good performance that he gives. Yeah, it's... Um... And, also, and also Harrison Ford, too. Like, I was worried that Harrison Ford was, you know, just going to ham it in and, you know, like, doing it for the paycheck kind of thing. Be- kind of thing because he is you know getting old and you know he really doesn't you get the feeling like he doesn't really care about these iconic characters of his so much you know in the line of star wars and indiana jones and blade runner like those are his big three and yeah. so i was kind of worried like that he was just gonna be yeah just ham it in but he was surprising he was good i enjoyed it's- him it's interesting to me. I, I feel like we've had this conversation um, somewhat before, but not on the podcast. If you watch um, Harrison Ford and his interviews that he does on like the the late night talk shows, the Jimmy Fallon and Conan and and all of those shows, he seems like he's like on something. Like he seems like he's not completely like a hundred percent in the moment without some sort of influence on him. And then you see him on the big screen, and he's just amazing yeah. like his his acting is still completely on point yeah. um so I, I i'm not sure what to to make of that contrast um because i think i think it's i think it's because he doesn't want to be there I, that's yeah, yeah it's, um, it's it's funny you should mention this because i actually just saw a video today of an interview with harrison ford and ryan gosling 
and it is the most hilarious interview ever. And it's the most I think I've ever seen Harrison Ford laugh or smile. Um, <laughs> Where did you it see is, it? It is. Um, I saw it online. Um, it is with just a sec. Let me pull it up. Um, who was it with? It is with This Morning. Okay. Um, that's their YouTube channel. So I guess you and can look up the two of them and, um, and This yeah, Morning. And Alice, Allison Hammond is the one who conducts the interview. And she is just she is just absolutely hilarious. Um, I've watched a couple of her other interviews that she's done. And they're just, they just look like they're all having a blast. Like, it's a very relaxed interview. So that's one thing that I think, like, you know, it just puts him them at ease. Yeah. And so, but no, just, just, yeah. It's... Google, like, Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford um, this morning. And uh, you'll see the video, and it's it's just a great video. I will say, I mean, Harrison Ford is 75 now, and I felt like um, in this film, and, and I don't feel like, you know, this is uh, spoilerish in any way, but because he's talked about um, in previous interviews about how he accidentally hit Ryan Gosling when they were having a fight scene. And um, and then how he like took you know uh, uh, whiskey to to Ryan's trailer to uh, you know try to make it better. Actually, he talked about that on one of the late night interviews. Yeah. Um, but it was it's starting to get a little weird for me seeing him do action sequences just because like you can kind of see his age in it. Yeah. And you're like, oh, like he's 75. Maybe he shouldn't be doing like action scenes um, because they just they <laughs> look you- a little off. Have you actually, have you seen the photo? There's actual photo of the moment he hits Ryan Gosling. No. Have you seen that yet? Oh, it is. I'm looking it up right now. The facial expressions on both of them are just priceless. It is, it is hilarious. Is it, um, so it was, okay, here we go. Here's the exact moment in which, uh, is it a video or is it, oh, it's on, uh. I don't know. I haven't seen, I haven't found the video. Oh but my I know god. There's, but there's an image. <laughs> I just saw it. Harrison Ford's face is the best part of this. He's yeah. like, oh god, what did I do? And Ryan looks like he yeah. just, like. He's been punched in the face. <laughs> oh my god. Harrison's. Uh, okay. So I'm going to have to post this on, on Fanbolt with the podcast because this is the most amazing um, photo ever. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It this is, is awesome. It is brilliant. Um, all right. Well, uh, so, moving along. Where were we? Where were we in our <laughs> with our review? Um, obviously, no uh, Atlanta recognition here, as it was not filmed in Atlanta. Um, no. Nope. On a scale of one to five, uh, what would you give Blade Runner twenty forty nine on the official Atlas scale? I am giving it a uh, a four point five. You know, this is a really it's a really really good film. Um. You know, I I love the director. You know, Denny, he is one of my favorite directors. So you know, I was a bit worried when he was going to be taking on the Blade Runner franchise because you know it's had this cult status, right? So, and he's never done. You know, he's never done a sequel. Like all his films have been these original original films before. So, right. I was interested to see how he would tackle this. And, you know, he does an amazing job. All the actors do an amazing job. The story is great. Um, definitely, definitely watch it. Definitely check it out. 
Um, I'd actually, I'd give it a five. Like it just, I had such high expectations coming into this that I kind of expected that I was going to be disappointed to some degree, but I felt like it totally delivered. It's, it's a beautiful film. You could freeze frame any second of it and it would be a beautiful piece of art for your wall. Um, the acting is great. The story is solid. Um, the, the music and the, the sound in it is just so eerily perfect. Um, yeah, it's, it's in the the special effects, just ev- everything. Everything is mm-hmm. exactly what you want it to be. Um, yeah. And it is something because of the enormity of, of so many of the scenes and, and the world in which, you know, this is, is uh, how it's being presented to you. It's definitely something you need to see on the IMAX to really fully appreciate the scale of, of this picture. It's just um, seeing it on a small screen, uh, well, it's not less uh, an average size movie screen. I don't feel like would give you um, as much of a wowing experience as IMAX would, just because. Yeah, it's something you want to be engulfed in. Yeah, and before you watch the film, obviously you'll want to see the original Blade Runner. But um, they also released three um, prequel shorts that I highly recommend you watch. Um, they're all on the Blade Runner YouTube channel. And they're all, all actually up on shakefire.com, but it's, um, one of them is called Nexus Dawn, and it basically goes into detail about Jared Leto's character, and the, it's the introduction of basically the new line of replicants. And then there's also one that also goes into the backstory behind, um, David Baptista's character, mm-hmm. who you've seen in the trailers and stuff, and it kind of goes into his motivation and... You know, just kind of explores more of the details of him. And then the third one is an animated short called Blackout 2022. And it kind of goes into what happened. There was a blackout, basically, in 22 that wiped out all the the electricity in, in the city. And, you know, it's these little things. Like, they mention the blackout in Blade Runner 2049. But, like, they don't really go into detail about it. So, like, seeing these shorts kind of gives you a better understanding of what is going on in the film. Cool. Cool. Um, well, I've been kind of going through some some fun facts that would not be spoiler-esque um, that we could, we could talk about. Um, originally, in the early stages of the development of the project, uh, Ridley Scott was actually going to be the director. And then um, as they moved closer to pre-production, he announced that he was no longer um, going to be uh, a director but would stay involved as a producer. And it's kind of speculated that his um, commitment to Alien Covenant may have been what made him step away from from directing this one. Um, the role of um, the uh, guys. I just got an email from my future self, and um, I'm giving a four point five. <laughs> email from your future self. All right. That's... Yeah, I just got got an email. <laughs> I think that's that's uh, that's a fair that's a fair score. Um, the uh, the role that Ryan Gosling plays, Blade Runner Officer K, was actually specifically written for him. He was the only choice uh, that the director wanted, which is kind of interesting. Um, let's see what else we got. Uh, Ryan Gosling turned down the role of the Joker in Suicide Squad, and Jared Leto, who is also in this film, uh, was cast, of course, instead as the Joker. I can't see Ryan Gosling as the Joker. Um, not not that Joker. At not least. that Joker. No. Um, that was a good decision, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I think that was probably that was probably smart. Um, 
I feel like a lot of these other ones are spoilerish, so I'm just not yeah. gonna. I'm not gonna just, dive into them. We've 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 gone. Um, I've, I've we've got, made it this far. Ahead, let's not. Let's yeah. not ruin it. Let's not burn let's any bridges. Um, I do have a couple of films. If you in, in, enjoy this film, or if you're a fan of uh, Blade Runner. There's a documentary that just came out a couple of months ago called Escapes, and it's on the co-writer of the screen, both screenplays, both the original and this one, Hampton uh, Fancher, who's a fascinating character. Um, he was a fairly well-known actor in the uh, in the 50s and 60s. Did a lot of guest starring on TV shows, um, and then he came across the the book. Um, um, and uh, decided that he wanted to try to get into make, making a film. And so he actually at one point bought the rights and wrote a screenplay. And I got, got bound around Hollywood for quite a while. Um, and then finally uh, Ridley Scott got attached to it. And although they rewrote a lot of his script, he did write the original. But it's a really fascinating film on a fascinating character. And then, uh, Matt, you're talking about um, the director... There's a great film he directed back in 2010 called Incendies. It's a foreign film. It was up for the best Oscar. And if you like mysteries, um, this is a film for you. It's an incredible film. Um, I just fell in love with it, and I highly recommend it. It's called Incendies, I-N-C-E-N-D-I-E-S. Cool. Well, um, so those are out this Friday as well, correct? Those two? No, those are those are movies you can find on Netflix. Okay. Um, the the other big film that's out this week that uh, Matt you saw it right, um, the Mountain Between Us. Yeah. Yep. So that's out. Um, I don't recommend it uh, unless you're a fan of Idris Elba or Kate Winslet. Um, it's good. otherwise you're, yeah. you're not going to enjoy it. And or the romance is romance stories. Yeah, I mean, if you're a big fan of Hallmark movies, then go see it because its ending is right out of a Hallmark movie. Aww. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't tell you what kind of a Hallmark movie because they have some ones that end badly. They have some ends that end happily. All right. Well, um, that's our podcast for this week. So thank you guys for listening to the Atlas podcast. Um, we have a couple of teases coming up for next week. We're going to be reviewing uh, Professor Marston and Wonder Woman and uh, Marshall. And of course, we also have Project Cosplay coming up on the 19th of this month at 9 p.m. at Joystick Game Bar on Edgewood here in Atlanta. Um, so stay tuned for those and uh thank you guys again it's gonna be the walking dead themed it is gonna be the walking dead themed it's gonna be zombies everywhere and it's gonna be leading right into um walking dead premiere on the 22nd so it's gonna be walking dead month here in just a hot second Mm -hmm. (laughs) um thank you guys again for listening my name is emma loggins editor-in-chief at fanbolt.com i'm matt rodriguez the owner-in-chief editor of shakefire.com I'm Mike McKinney of last one to lead with theater.com and ATLCW.tv. And no matter what Matt or Emma said, I am not a fan of My Little Pony. <laughs> Lies. Yeah, sure, Mike. Sure. <laughs> we'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>